Live. Welcome to Keepers of the Word. We are an esoteric study group of Freemasons. Our purpose of sharing knowledge of mystery schools and debunking misconceptions about Freemasonry. You're here with Mike and Ron. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Any of the opinions expressed on Keepers of the Word do not reflect the opinions of other organizations or Masonic lodges. Uh, today we're going to talk about and explain some definitions of esoteric and occult. Esoteric, esoteric uh, intended for or likely to be understood by one, only a small number of people with a specialized knowledge or interest. Occult, supernatural, mystical, and magical beliefs, practices, and phenomena. Why did we need to explain that? Because the public needs to know. Uh, the occult, whenever you mention occult or esoteric, people always want to associate that with just Satanism, unfortunately. Um, negative, dark. It's negative, dark energy or dark magic or whatever. And it's not. It's, it's, you know, it's something that we need to talk about. And that's why we have Keepers of the Word. We talk about those things. So, uh, go for it, Ron. Um, I understand that Aleister Crowley was um, involved with the OTO, and um, I've done some research on Crowley. I've heard some things about him, and was just curious if you could expand on. I'm your... sorry. We need to introduce our guest. I'm first. sorry. It's okay. <laughs> you know. Please do. Yes. Uh, today we have a special guest uh, who has a vast who has vast knowledge in both uh, areas. Um, in the OTO and other um, esoteric areas, uh, Mr. Lon Milo Duquette, an esteemed active member of the order, uh, and also a Freemason um, Thanks for out of me. Lodge 327 in Long Beach. Uh, so now, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, could you start by talking about Crowley? Oh, you, you've heard negative things about <laughs> No. <laughs> the Beast. Uh, the Beast is, it could be a good, you know, porn name, but um, we're not going there. Uh, we're talking about Crowley, and Crowley uh, was, in in many regards, known as the Dark Lord of. <laughs> and he would just love. I, that. I bet you okay. he would, right? He would just love that. So you know, go ahead and share, share, share what you got. Well, Crowley was a man who was uh, uh, ahead of his time. Even if his time would have been right now, he would have been a- ahead of his time. Uh he uh, he did he cultivated uh, a notorious uh, uh, reputation and for what he thought was pretty good reasons. Uh, magic is a, a spiritual art form that uh, is for grown-ups and magic. Uh, tinkered with by immature or uh, superstitious uh, people uh, is sort of is sort of a, a recipe for mental illness. Mm. But for adults and for people who aren't particularly superstitious and for people that can that can see through. Um, uh, the the metaphors of the of the art form, uh, it's it's high magic. It's it's great yoga. It's a spiritual. It's a formula for spiritual uh, illumination and, and magic. And in the in the same way that uh, uh, 
the craft of masonry has been uh, kept uh, to a certain degree uh, secret from the from the profane. Uh, Crowley liked to uh, more or less test the people who were uh, potentially going to be uh, studying magic, and if they were superstitious enough to be freaked out by uh, the way Crowley was presenting it, then they were too superstitious to to uh, actually... Uh, Handle the truth. Uh, yeah. And so uh, he, he delighted, he delighted uh, in freaking out the freak-outable. Hmm. And... Uh, and in a sense, that just uh, the the people that that stayed uh, in his in his circle were people that were actually ready to to, to handle this work and and to move ahead. And uh, so, but there's really no place for uh, for superstition and uh, the, the idea of Satanism and things like that's a very superstitious uh, uh, sort of a perversion of. Um, uh, a mentally ill attitude toward averse Christianity or averse uh, uh, religion, and uh, that just has no place in a serious magical study. And in your area, in the area of freaking them out, do you know of anything that he did in particular, or um, was there anything that he covered uh, that he would throw at somebody and then freak them out immediately? Where, sh- where shall I start? Let's see. Okay. Um, the thing that you hear about mostly is is uh, one thing that he uh, wrote in uh, uh, his book four, part three, which has been published for years as Magic in Theory and Practice. And um, you have to remember the time period that Crowley was, was writing in. And uh, at the time he wrote this was in the 1920s. And he was trying to write in an intelligent way about uh, what we would call today uh, tantric yoga. And there's a certain aspect of tantric yoga that involves uh, uh, sexual energy. Sex magic, yeah. Right. And um, uh, the opening of of, uh, uh, certain chakras through the, the conscious working of sexual energy up and down the spinal column. And it's, you go down to B. Dalton Bookstore or Barnes & Noble, and you'll see a section that big on, on tantric yoga, okay? Mm-hmm. But in those days, it was actually illegal uh, to publish uh, material uh, that had anything to do with one's... Uh, with sexuality oh. as a matter of fact in the in the time that he, Crowley was writing this particular thing I'm going to talk about uh, even medical journals had to uh, be very careful with their wording when they talked about the male or female sexual organs hmm. the medical medical journals yeah. had had to be careful about it so if he was going to talk about uh, uh, a, a tantric uh, process whereby uh, uh, in, in a meditative uh, exercise 
the consciousness of the of the individual or the magician uh, dissolves for a moment into to uh, ecstasy at the the moment of of sexual release. That moment d destroys temporarily the ego. The magician, in a sense, at that at that moment when it's properly done, properly worked up to, um, uh, that ecstasy dissolves uh, into a high state of consciousness where the magician no longer is separated from the rest of the universe. In other words, everyone Pure on the planet accidentally, one way or another, experiences these, these moments of complete self-annihilation. And it feels great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, but in a sense, the consciousness itself has, has achieved an extremely high level of consciousness, which can be expanded and and uh, and uh, and prolonged. It's our natural state of consciousness. You and me aren't even separated from each other in reality. Right. Okay. Right. And in the, in that moment, uh, uh, everything's dissolved dissolved into to, uh, ecstasy. So ego death. And when you are everything, here's the magical part of the process when you are everything when you're identifying with yourself as the everything you can create anything hmm. and so this is where uh, a, a magician who's who has certain uh, uh, layers of their consciousness well trained the Kabbalists have the four Levels, you know, the body, the the mind, the kind of the soul intuition, and then the the life force itself. If you've got the lower part of you trained like a nice robot to be able to hold uh, uh, in the ruach or the the imagination, the image of what you would like to to uh, accomplish or to create, while you are everything. Conceivably and theoretically, you could give birth to anything. Hmm. It's the ultimate, Crowley saw it as the ultimate uh, magical creative uh, technique. But you got to be a great yogi to pull it off. Okay. It's a lot of practice. And, and, a, and a lot of practice, and you kind of got to know what, what you're doing. So it's the, the technique's easy to explain. I explained it to you just just now right but to actually pull it off requires you being not only a great magician but a great yogi so in the he wanted to talk about this in the magic and theory and practice so he called it and you can't talk about sex you couldn't he couldn't say it just like i said right. it just during the, now during okay. that time uh, so instead he wrote a chapter called The Bloody Sacrifice. Hmm. Okay. And he talked about, he used the, the idea of primitive blood sacrifice, uh, like um, uh, the Jewish form of temple worship, the, the slaughtering of animals and, mm -hmm. and all that 
blood spreading stuff, the blood okay right. that and he was using that as a metaphor to saying oh yes this is the great thing uh, you know release all of this blood and stuff like that he was using the word blood in place of the words uh, semen hmm. he was using the word death instead of the word orgasm ecstasy ecstasy okay um he was um uh, and he treated it like it was child sacrifice that's the best one oh god loves a child sacrifice and the best child is a male of of high intellect you know and then in the, in the footnote he says it's always the magician himself that okay and then there's another footnote at the end of this thing saying you're going to get in real big trouble if you misunderstand what i just <laughs> said and then in another footnote to that chapter he uh he says um uh look soror somebody uh said you know i'm really unwise to say it this way and she made me promise to say it doesn't i didn't really mean what i was saying outward outwardly you know that there's a meaning behind what i was saying but and then he said uh at the end of the chapter uh my records show that i um uh performed this child sacrifice 120 times one year oh so what he was saying there is Tantra. I I I ejaculated 120, 120 times this year and without making a without making a anybody pregnant. It's a lot of work. Yeah. So that's now can you see his sense of humor? Yeah, I can. So okay. so was he a yogi? Was, was Yeah, he, he was a, and he, he was, was well practiced. Yeah, as as good as a as a tight Englishman can be. Yeah. yeah. So was next question I don't mean to no, push ahead. you out there um talking about the way you're talking about the dissolving of the ego I mean that's that's ego death right there and that's I know many people experiment with psychedelics in order to accomplish the same thing but I also know that yoga is something that can also accomplish it so did he did he dabble both ways or was yoga just yeah the primary? he uh by the time he started writing about this stuff he had been he had been practicing he'd studied uh, with uh with Alan Bennett uh in the Golden Dawn as a matter of fact they they became roommates Alan Bennett then later became a Buddhist uh went to Ceylon became a Buddhist monk and uh, uh founded uh, oh th- they've made statues to him he's uh, he's uh founded a buddhist order and uh crowley was a was a talented very disciplined guy he was very athletic he was a mountain climber right. uh he still has two uh mountain climbing records that have not been broken wow um uh, uh on k2 he spent uh uh a great length of time on the Baltoro uh, glacier uh at an altitude without without oxygen and nobody does that anymore so wow. the record still holds uh, he was uh 
uh, a rock climber. Uh, so it seems so, like he was very misunderstood. Oh, yeah. And he truly, he thought, you know how, have you ever met a genius? Yes, I have. They're hard people to know. They're hard people to be friends with. They're, 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 not, they're not able to be in society like the rest of us. And they, they don't really understand or spend too much time caring what other people think. Exactly. And, and Crowley was like that. And Crowley couldn't believe that everybody didn't see what a great genius he was. Everybody didn't, uh, uh, didn't get him, and he, he couldn't. Well, clearly everyone didn't because, I mean, didn't even his daughter kind of press away from him, disown him at some point? I mean, oh, yeah, and I know um, uh, uh, Crowley's uh, grandson, and uh, uh, great guy, great, he's a great musician, uh, pianist, jazz pianist. Um, and the family just, uh, they just, he's, he's crazy, you know, he's a crazy guy. So he's not really a family kind of, kind of guy. And, uh, <laughs> and so he was, uh, and he could, and friends, it was hard to be friends with Crowley. Okay. I think, uh, stepping aside from Crowley and getting into the occult and esoteric studies, um, what interests you the most about the occult and the esoteric? That's a good question and impossible to ask uh, or to answer. <laughs> it's very vague. <laughs> um, for me, it's it's easier to do it than not do it. It's uh, uh, when I was a kid, growing up in Nebraska, uh, which is like. Uh, it's very Dante-esque. It's hell. Um, <laughs> Which level? <laughs> no offense to Nebraskans. <laughs> You're lovely people. So. But uh, my father was a Mason, a uh, member of uh, uh, Signal Lodge, which got absorbed into my lodge. Um, and... Uh, uh, Scottish Rite, Long Beach Scottish Rite bodies. And uh, so I belonged to the same lodge, oh, lodge cool. as uh, he did here in town. Um, but he had a morals and dogma, okay, a nice hardbound morals and dogma with the index, you know, that thick in the, in mm. the back. Mm. And uh, when you're a kid growing up, in Nebraska, there's not a heck of a lot to do, and you become very desperate, and uh, you've become so desperate, you find something to read. <laughs> you picked up morals and dogma. <laughs> and so I pulled the morals and dogma down, and I go, what the hell? Whoa. But there's cool drawings. Yeah. You, you know, the, yeah, there's cool drawings and stuff. And... Uh, but they it talked about gods, and it talked about uh, about uh, uh, the the rites of Eleusis, and it talked about uh, uh, mystery cults of uh, of the ancient times, and the Persians and the Egyptians, and and I just thought this is so 
cool. And my dad used to rattle off his Scottish Rite uh, degree names. And he would always finish up with Prince of the Royal Secret. <laughs> and uh, it's like, tell me, the, what, what's the royal secret? I can't tell you. <laughs> it's a secret. I said, you can tell me. And he said, no, I can't. Uh, but when you become a Mason, you'll be a prince of the royal secret. I said, can't you even tell mom? And he said, no, I can't tell your mother. And I go, whoa, that's cool. You know, can't tell mom. I want that. And uh, so I, I was uh, uh, intrigued with that. And uh, when I was 14, uh, uh, a chapter of D. Malay opened up uh, in town, in Columbus, Nebraska. And, my, of course, my dad wanted me to be a D. Malay. And so I joined the D-Malay, and uh, uh, it, it was okay. And I'm proud and happy and uh, proud of my membership in uh, D-Malay. Uh, but I wasn't, and I enjoyed uh, dressing up in capes and strutting around in the dark. Okay, so <laughs> th that seemed sort of magical. You yeah. Know? yeah. And uh, the... After uh, convocation, uh, everybody would uh, would leave the temple and go uh, uh, out in the the recreational area and have cookies and stuff. But I loved the temple. We had a, in Columbus, Nebraska, had a nice, nice little uh, uh, second floor temple. With that soft, beautiful, uh, indirect lighting, and uh, and nice old old furniture, the pedestals in the in the south and the east and the west were were gorgeously uh, constructed, and it was semi dark. And where the light was coming from, you couldn't, it was indirect, so you couldn't even see where the light was coming from. And I just love the feel in the temple. And I kept thinking, Prince of the Royal Secret. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I could, it was a tangible feeling in the room. I was feeling the egregore, okay, of a, of a hundred years of masons strutting around in there. Yeah. But it was a timeless egregore, like I was feeling centuries of masons strutting around in there. And uh, I would sit by myself uh, in the South. I loved sitting in the South. Uh, and uh, I felt the top of the podium, and there was a nice thick, piece of granite on the top of it and I sort of pushed it and it moved and off of a little pivot on one corner and I moved it there and I looked inside and there was a book hmm. in there and I got the book out and it was a blue cipher book <laughs> <laughs> so you looked at it like whoa what is this what is this 
Yeah, so, so. That, that threw you for a loop. Huh? Yeah, and I said, this has got to be, uh, this is so cool. This is so cool. Uh, so actually, masonry got me interested in mystical mystical stuff because I said, okay, there's something timeless here. Mm-hmm. There, there's a mystery behind this. And uh, oddly enough, uh, I went to hardcore magic uh, uh, <laughs> magic things uh, first, and I didn't end up joining the Masons till I was fifty. So wow, I've been a Mason now for twenty years. So okay, so you, you did you join the OTO first and then? Join oh the God, Masons? yes. <laughs> so what drew you to the OTO and and? When did you join that? And why don't you talk about the And for the those OTO. who don't know what the OTO, Ordo Templi Orientis? Right. Correct? Okay. Uh, well, uh, I was in the Rosicrucian Order Amorc. Okay. Uh, now I joined about the time my son was born, 1972. Because I heard they were like mystic Freemasons only there were women. And I said, well, that's for me. (laughs) And uh, uh, I really found out that I enjoyed uh, putting on a robe and strutting around in the dark in the Rosicrucians, okay? And I truly, truly enjoyed it. And it was almost kind of magical in in nature. I was... uh, uh, active in Abdiel Lodge here in, in uh, Long Beach. And uh, uh, I got interested in Kabbalah, basic Kabbalah, and I was introduced to the Builders of the Aditum uh, Correspondence Course uh, in uh, basic uh, Kabbalah and tarot, fund- tarot fundamentals. And I eventually uh, found a uh, early edition of Aleister Crowley's Thoth Tarot, uh, probably 1970 edition, uh, at B. Dalton's bookstore. Oh, wow. And I went home, and I took the the deck home and opened it up, and it's absolutely beautiful. I don't know if you've, you've seen the Thoth deck, but yeah. it's breathtaking. But it's really kind of weird, mm. and... Uh, uh, it's not your father's tarot deck, you know. <laughs> and uh, I, but it was so beautiful that I said, "This is just absolute." I wonder who who this Alistair Crowley character is, because it says designed by Crowley. And I had a uh, well. First of all, the cards were so so breathtakingly beautiful that they were almost disturbing if that makes any sense. Like when you hear Philip Glass music or or you hear super cutting-edge music, and at first you go, I, ooh, I, I like that, but it's, it's too much scary. Yeah. You know, cause it makes you feel things that you... Touches a part of your soul that yeah. you didn't exactly know was there. I huh? didn't even know that thing existed, <laughs> you know. And... Uh, so so I was a little little uncertain and and some of the cards just look so occult and crazy that in my little superstitious ignorance I uh, I thought you know this is so beautiful that 
I don't think this could be made naturally. So like the devil must have made this. Okay? Uh, Paganini, the great violinist, played, <laughs> played his violin so great that, that all the other violinists said, the devil must have taught him how to do that because nobody <laughs> Made his deal with good. the devil like Robert Johnson or yeah, something like that. Yeah, there you go, yeah, the yeah. crossroads. And uh, so anyway, I said, who's this Crowley character? And I've got a little occult dictionary that uh, is almost like a pamphlet that I bought at the checkout stand at Ralph's along with make your own sushi and <laughs> mac may for you, you know, and there's it's all called dictionary. And I opened it up and looked up Crowley and it says famous Scottish Satanist. Whoa. And again, at, you realized at, now that yes, you would have enjoyed that, right? At his funeral, <laughs> a black mass was performed. And I went, oh, I was right. The devil made these cards. You know, I knew that something was something was up. And I had no idea that what I thought I thought Satanism was didn't even exist in objective reality. And secondly, Crowley wasn't one. Okay, and. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, he would have probably been more upset to be called a Scotsman. <laughs> and no offense to Scotsmen, especially if they're from Nebraska. <laughs> uh, so I got rid of the... Uh, uh, I gave the cards to my brother, who had an old Bantam Press edition of the Book of Thoth, the book that goes with him. Now, he wasn't going to read the book and he wasn't going to look at the cards. But at least we both thought they belonged together. So I gave them to him. And then a friend of ours uh, visited us. Uh, we hadn't seen him in a couple of years, and he had been in Guatemala farming. And uh, he said, what you been up to? Well, I, I joined the Rosicrucians, and I'm into tarot and Kabbalah. And Oh, speaking of tarot and Kabbalah, I met this, uh, or I uh, uh, got these cards from these, these, Satan, <coughs> these Satan cards. Uh, and I found out that, uh, uh, that a Satanist made them, and I, boy, I got rid of those, good riddance. And he says, who, who is this that created those cards? I said, uh, Alistair uh, Crowley. And he goes, and he looks at me like I'm the stupidest person in the world, okay? And I knew he was thinking that because he said, you're the stupidest person in the world. <laughs> he said it to tell you. And uh, he said, everything you think you want to learn with your Kabbalah stuff and your tarot stuff and your Rosicrucian stuff, this guy knew more than anybody else on the planet, and if you're serious about the study of all of this stuff, you're going to have to get knowledgeable about this guy. And I said, well, was he a Satanist? And he goes, no, he wasn't a Satanist. Well, yeah, he certainly was. <laughs> you know. And then he said, but, but no. Uh, and he says, if he was a Satanist, he was a good kind of Satanist. And you're just going to... Uh, Love this guy, I, and he had read his biography, uh, the Confessions. And if you read the Confessions, then 
you know, you know, everything's okay. Um, and uh, so I got the cards back, and I got the book back, and I read the book of Thoth. And if you've re- ever read the book of Thoth, it goes, it goes right over your head, and only a little bit sinks in it at, at first. Because he tries to tell you everything about everything in one book. He wrote it toward the end of his life. And I knew one thing. I I didn't understand 90% of it, but the 10% I did understand told me that this guy was absolutely brilliant. That he he was, for all intent and purposes, the, the voice, the sane, intelligent voice of all Western mysticism. He put the thing all, all together in such a way that I could understand it as a mid-20th century hippie. And I started to collect everything I could uh, that was published by him that I could get at the time, which was precious little. So... I forgot what the question was, but that, <laughs> that was but good information, though. Your uh, your interest in the OTO and joining. Okay, so on the the OTO uh, is the literary executor of uh, of Crowley's thing. Uh, the OTO was a, a magical. Uh, it was a quasi Masonic uh, order in the from about eighteen eighty eight to nineteen nineteen hundred. Uh, and they, uh, uh, but it was a group of. Uh, you may not recognize that things like this happen, but it was a group of Freemasons that actually wanted to study the esoteric nature of the craft. Hmm. A wild <laughs> idea. Okay. Imagine that. Imagine and, that. And uh, uh, they're all over, all over the world, and uh, all over Europe. And there was uh, uh, all sorts of very, very tiny little esoteric uh, uh, forms of uh, a whole scattering of uh, Martinist uh, organizations and Gold und Rosa Kreuzens and and, uh, 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 little groups, none of them having more than five or six people and most of them sharing membership with with other with groups. each other, yeah. and they were all trading uh, uh, memberships and warrants like baseball cards. And Franz Hartmann was a uh, famous Masonic antiquarian, I guess you could, because he collected uh, warrants. Carl uh, Kellner and uh, Theodor Royce uh, uh, were the German and Austrian kind of thing. They wanted to to uh, uh, actually study, uh, to add esoteric degrees to the, the already uh, beautiful degrees of what we would think of as the, the Blue Lodge, uh, uh, Royal Arch, uh, Council Princes of Jerusalem, and uh, Kadosh degrees. And then, once they found out and, and, and they, they all just ran that. It's just regular masonry in whatever little district they, they were in. But once they knew a person can keep a secret or two, 
and they trust these people that have gone through all of these uh, various degrees already, then they'd say, how would you like to join the OTO, which mm -hmm. is an esoteric yeah. uh, Interesting. Uh, group? But we have to be a little quiet because we study Sufism and we study Tantra and we study alchemy and we study uh, the, the esoteric nature of, of Christianity. And in those days, they were just starting to open up to these more uh, uh, psychosexual uh, uh, aspects of of things that uh, that that they've been doing in the East for two thousand years. Yeah. Okay, and so their uh, the OTO degrees said uh, were this extra added on uh, thing to an already existing program. But the thing was that along about nineteen eleven, they said, you know, it's stupid that we can't open our membership to women. And so at a, a continental Masonic uh, uh, meeting, uh, they said, we want to be recognized and, we, and we, uh, we're open to women too. And United Grand Lodge of England said, uh, no, 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 no. The Grand Orient of France, no, 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 no. And so that's when the OTO said, okay, we're not going to run the craft degrees. Separate completely we're, we're not going to make Masons anymore. We're going to be our own Idaho. Well, which worked out, right? And it worked out. Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, so we, we have a rich Masonic heritage. Correct. But, but we're not a Masonic group. We right. don't make Masons. And, and that's actually the same reason why we created Keepers of the Word, because we felt that, there, that, that the craft is missing the esoteric, and it's kind of rooted in it. So, I mean, why not share it? And, you know, according to data, data is showing that people want the esoteric rather than, you know, just what surface, what's on the surface. Right. Which is, you know, technically the working tools, right? And it goes deeper than that. But it just depends on how deep you want to go. And unfortunately, in, in most lodges, and I'm pretty sure you can attest to this, it's there really isn't that group in a lot of lodges. So, you know, you're, you're lucky if you go to a lodge and you have a group that is into the esoterics and can go and guide you down these different rabbit holes. Right. right. Um, especially, you know, if you wanted to get into like specific uh, mystery schools, um, say, for instance, you wanted to jump into Kabbalah, right? You would have to have somebody who was knowledgeable about it. Luckily for us, you're very knowledgeable in Kabbalah, right? So I noticed you have some books right there, like The Chicken Kabbalah, and uh, let's talk about that. The Chicken Kabbalah, where can we get that at? Uh, Amazon? Oh, you can get it anywhere. Barnes and Noble, Barnes Amazon, and Noble, Amazon yeah. Chicken Kabbalah. If you've got a local Barnes and Noble or a local occult bookstore, Try there first because mm -hmm. we like to support support the the, yeah. the little guy. But uh, you can get it at uh, Kmart or any place that sells uh, books online. You can get it. So and why chicken Kabbalah? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
years ago, um, <laughs> 20 some years ago, uh, I created a tarot deck that's Kabbalistically uh, based uh, that uh, uh, has has on it all all the appropriate uh, uh, Goetic spirit names, mm-hmm. uh, angels of the Shemhamfarish. They all belong on decans of the zodiac, just like the tarot small tarot cards. Um, the uh, Enochian magic uh, elemental squares, the Enochian magic of John D. Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are the the Enochian tablets elemental tablets are the same thing as the aces. Only they've got hundreds of little angels inside uh, oh. each one of them. Each of the subangles of those are the four court cards of the of the of the system, and they have little angels inside them. In other words, it's like a a, a wonderful storage cabinet of angels, spirits, and and demons, all applied uh, through the very strict Kabbalistic structure of. Uh, of the the Kabbalah, hmm. the Hermetic Kabbalah. So I was very proud of the project, and U.S. Games uh, uh, published the, the first edition of it. And uh, uh, my publisher, Weiser, uh, Weiser Books, uh, I did the book that goes with it called Tarot of Ceremonial Magic. And I was uh, uh, doing a book launch at uh, Bodhi Tree Bookstore in Los Angeles. Are you old enough to remember the Bodhi Tree bookstore? It Probably was, not. <laughs> it was paradise. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, but I was giving a, uh, a lecture or a talk on, uh, on the Kabbalah. And I'm not a strict... Kabbalist, you know, I, I'm not, uh, I don't embrace or practice the, the religious aspect of uh, the, uh, of Judaism, that there's multiple kinds of uh, Kabbalistic studies. This is Hermetic Kabbalah. This is Magic Kabbalah, okay? It's not the religious Kabbalah. So it doesn't matter if you mispronounce the words. <laughs> okay. Uh, but anyway, every word I said, there was a guy in the front row that I'd, when I'd even say the word Kabbalah, he'd go, <clears throat> and when I'd say uh, other Kabbalistic words like, uh, oh, the, 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 the Kabbalistic world of Bria, the world of soft cheeses, or something like that, then he'd go, oh, oh. <laughs> Kether, oh, mm, Malkus, oh, mm. and then after the, everybody else was having a good time and laughing and stuff because I like to have fun because that's Why just not? the way I am. Why not? Because that's <laughs> life, right? Um, and uh, afterwards, he comes charging up, and I actually am sort of physically intimidated. And he says, what you teach is not Kabbalah. You don't even say Kabbalah right. It's Kabbalah. <laughs> and I want to tell him, look, you know, this is Hermetic Kabbalah. 
it doesn't matter what it sounds like. The, you know, the letters have numbers and the numbers have things. And then, you, you know, it's the, <laughs> and uh, uh, he was livid. Okay, and it was obvious that I had offended some kind of uh, orthodox sen- sensitivities, which I respect. And uh, but from his point of view, you got to be forty years old to start to study the Kabbalah. You got to be a man to study the Kabbalah. You got to be rich enough so you don't work anymore. You got to be rich enough to somebody else cooks your food. You got to be rich enough that you don't have to do any work around the house. There's all of these. Ridiculousness. Ridiculous things, okay? And if and if you're doing it from a religious point of view, I respect it. You're like a strange monk of some right. kind. Mm-hmm. Fine, okay? But no, I'm trying to understand my universe and myself as the reflection of that universe. I'm trying to connect everything in the universe to everything else until there's nothing left to connect. And then I can find my place in the universe. That's what I'm doing this for. Okay. I don't I don't care about that other stuff. And uh, finally he says, What you keep teaching is not Kabbalah. It's it's and the veins in his neck are sticking out. And uh, <laughs> he's trying to think of a word that's just dirty enough to describe what kind of Kabbalah I teach. And he, because English obviously wasn't his first language, and he says, "It's it, it's chicken. <laughs> <laughs> it's chicken, chicken Kabbalah. And a light bulb goes off. Oh, wow, I could sell head. that. This guy is not an angry man. This guy's an angel of God. <laughs> Who has just given me the name giving of the you kind a gift. of Kabbalah you a that, that you want. Yeah. So I invented my own rabbi, Rabbi Lamed Ben Clifford, who can say all the things I want to say and and teach Kabbalah the way <clears throat> you want to do it. I want to teach it, and I can refer to him as my own authority. So this is the teachings of uh, Rabbi Lamed Ben Clifford. Mm-hmm. And then Lon Duquette comments on it. Oh. Okay. And I say, yo, he was a phony and everything else, but he was a genius. <laughs> <laughs> and this is how I can call myself a genius. And uh, uh, actually, it's the best Kabbalah book uh, that I could come up with. And I teach a Monday night magic class, 41 years in my home in Costa Mesa. And so every year I get goofier and goofier in how I teach the Kabbalah because Kabbalah is just flat out boring. (laughs) Thank you for being honest. I appreciate that. So, but it doesn't have to be. Okay, it's very fun. It's inspiring. It's awesome. But it's boring if you don't actually incorporate it into into something you can actually wrap your meat brain around and so the the it was a hard the concept was hard to sell my publisher because it's a hoax but I, it's serious yes yeah, it's a hoax and my publisher actually was a, a jewish capitalist <laughs> don donald weiser and uh he thought it was 
hysterical. And uh, he said, yeah, we'll do it. And it's been very, very well received. And then, uh, uh, but, it, but it's old, okay. How old is it? I think it's 15 years old or something. 2001. I gotta check that out. But is it still applicable? It's still selling. Okay. Yeah, well, that's. I think that's the whole point, right? It's it, if it's talking to you and, and yeah. talking to you, like your soul, then it means something. Yeah. Right. So you did something good, whether you pronounced it wrong or it's chicken Kabbalah. It doesn't matter. The fact is, is you're getting you're getting through, and you're talking to people, and it's it's changing their lives. As long as it, it does something for the positive, why not? Right. It doesn't matter how you say it. It's as long as your intent is good. And if you're you're interested in any of the esoteric Western esoteric traditions, uh, you need a little grounding in, in Kabbalah. You need to kind of know your Hebrew letters and the, the uh, tables of correspondences yeah. and stuff. So it's it's been picked up by people that uh, are interested in uh, in other Kabbalah-based systems, astrology, uh, tarot. Uh, anything that's that's ultimately Kabbalah based then uh, uh, three years ago I started teaching in China and uh, uh, as I was uh, uh, leaving Beijing the organizers said why don't you come back every 90 days at the equinoxes and solstices and teach Kabbalah and uh, like a fool, I said, yes, I'll do that. Because I, I like going to China. It's fun. And, uh, but then I decided to have a three-degree Kabbalah initiation order. Uh, just a miniature, off-the-shelf, mini order. And I come back, and I got three days. We're sequestered in a hotel with the same 12 people, season after season after season. I have the opportunity to in, implant in a psychodramic, dramatic way the Hebrew alphabet, the three mother letters, the seven double letters, and the 12 simple letters, and then give them 90 days with a study program to master those three sections of the Hebrew alphabet. And then on the fourth section, we incorporate it and have a graduation ceremony and uh, get drunk. Oh, uh, nice. no, no. <laughs> and that's just what I did. Uh, and when I came back, uh, I put the material together in a book. This is a an initiatory order handbook with this with the scripts and the the floor cloths and the little toys, the cubes oh, and so the dodecahedrons and the study program. And uh, what's the name of that book? This is called This is Chicken Kabbalah. This is Son of Chicken Kabbalah. Ah. Son of. Son of Chicken Kabbalah. And it's subtitled, Rabbi Lamed Ben Clifford's Mostly Painless 
practical Kabbalah course, the secret in the secret initiation ceremonies, exercises, and meditations of a probably completely fictitious Kabbalah initiatory society. Well accomplished. So that's two thirds of the book right there. Uh, so more nice. fun. So more fun. <laughs> yeah. I got it. Well, I definitely am going to check those out. Now, switching gears a little, I know earlier before we went live, we were talking about um, Aleister Crowley and the Abramelin. Um, Abramelin, the book of Abramelin, um, you know, it was, uh, tells a story of an Egyptian mage named Abraham uh, who taught a system of magic to Abraham of Worms, uh, pres- presumed to have lived uh, from. S- 1362 to 1458, the system of magic from the book regained popularity in the 19th century and the 20th century, partially due to Samuel Liddell McGregor Mathers, uh, who translated the book, the book of the sacred, sacred magic of Abra Melon the Mage. Now, I, I, we were talking about the ritual and the 18-month ritual that uh, was supposed to be happening, I, be, I believe, in Scotland, right, with Aleister Crowley. And then somehow some, something happened, and he just stopped. So um, please give us your insight on that. Because I know we were talking about it, and we just stopped, and I kind of want to continue where, where we were left off. Well, first of all, the, uh, Abraham of Worms was a real historical uh, Character, he was like the uh, the freelance traveling Merlin hmm. for for uh, a, an assortment of uh, a European and Eastern European potentates. Oh. Uh, so Abraham, you can look him up, cross reference him in 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 other ways. Uh, he was an alchemist, and uh, a lot of his illustrations are even. Uh, still available to us. Uh, I think Francis Barrett uh, used a few of his illustrations in the Magus. Um, the, what makes the Abramelin operation unique? Let's start here. Uh, it's medieval European magic was a pretty funky Thing okay compared to uh, Roman Greco uh, uh, magic that it was sort of born out of, which had a rich tradition uh, coming from the Moors and the uh, Islamic magicians. Right, European magic was pretty down and dirty. Let me whip up a demon and get the girl next door to fall in love with me, or let me kill somebody at a distance kind of mm. stuff. Okay. And it was based almost entirely on the ignorance and superstition of the of the magician. You've you've heard the you've heard that ignorance is very powerful on a temporary <laughs> <laughs> in a temporary uh, uh, way, okay, and the uh, the idea of the Faustian pact, mm. okay, uh, that you 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 any sort of spiritual creature that you would uh, you whip up is evil, and uh, because God doesn't want you doing that, because the Bible says stay away from that kind of stuff. 
But if you really want that girl to fall in love with you, if you really want to kill at a distance, you're, you're ready to, to jeopardize your soul to get that to happen. And so it's just funky, really funky and stupid. <laughs> but the Abermelon, oh, and not only that, but it sends you off on a, a scavenger hunt for, you know, weasel snouts and eye of newts and stuff stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, there's a know, lot of... And doing bats, but yeah. it's like a scavenger hunt, you know. Uh, which all kind of has a technical thing to to get you psyched up for, for what you're doing. And it's I'm not saying that it doesn't work to some level, but it's not really a spiritual art form. It's like... It's like a very active form of mental illness. 18 months. But Abermelon is a little different. As a matter of fact, the Abermelon operation puts it on the level of the highest practices of Eastern mysticism. In order to do the Abermelon operation and exercise godlike powers, you actually have to be godlike. So the magician, instead of just tipping his hat to deity in an invocation, the magician actually Becoming has to deity. gain enlightenment. Uh. And that's what the 18-month program is. Is to ascend. Is to, is to yes, to do like Solomon really did. Uh, or the... The fable of Solomon. Yeah. He entered into the presence of, of God. In other words, he raised his consciousness uh, to Godhead. And so what the Abermelon operation uh, says, the very first thing you do before you start to do magic is you become wedded to your own holy guardian angel, which is the level of consciousness that is centered in the Anahat chakra, uh, or if you're projecting on the Kabbalistic tree of life, it's number six. Okay, this is like the union of the six of the macrocosm with the five of your stupid everyday consciousness, and they're wed together, they become one. And then your angel then tells you what to do. Okay. Hmm. The angel is you. <coughs> sort of. It's like it's a higher you. version of you. Yes. Crowley didn't like to, like to simplify it and say it's your higher self. But ultimately it's all yourself. So, yeah. Okay. You have to gain enlightenment. So, if... If it's truly your will to to uh, uh, kill at a distance, that's fine. You could have that desire, but go ahead and gain enlightenment first, okay? And this operation was a heroic yogic, uh, increasing in intensity and focus every day for for eighteen months, until you literally snap. And just like uh, we were discussing ecstasy, mm -hmm. and you dissolve your consciousness into... into uh, Ego death. Yeah. 
wedding your holy guardian angel is that experience. Okay. And then when your when your consciousness has been raised to that level, then you're informed enough to know whether doing magic this way or that way or that way is in your best interest or not. All the other medieval magicians, they might be able to temporarily have a little power to do something, but they have no idea if it ultimately is in their best interest or not. They're too stupid to do magic, in other words. So, and it'll blow up in their face. So this operation was connecting with your intuition to allow you to know if that's the if you're wanting to kill at a distance, is that the right thing to do? Right. Or what what should you do? Right. And and so the the analogy, the metaphor would be now your angel informs you that your angel is your counselor. So there's uh, the Abermelon. Uh, uh, operation that Crowley was working with was the Mathers translation, which was a little sh- shorter and is a fragmented thing. But Crowley recognized, yes, this is high magic. This is great yoga. This is this is different than the than the other stuff. This is in a on a level all of its own. I'm going to do it. And so he buys this house up in in uh, Inverness, Scotland, at the shores of Loch Ness. Oh, Loch Ness. You can't make this stuff no, up. No, can't, right? Just, and uh, he starts to do all the preliminary work, and he takes the oath and everything else, and starts making the sigils. And uh, he uh, he notices that. Uh, uh, Oh, he says demons are running loose in town. (laughs) (laughs) Who who knows, you know, people break out in nosebleeds all over the place. But then McGregor Mathers, his magical teacher, who he absolutely worships, his golden dawn magical master, is in trouble in Paris. And there's a revolt in the golden dawn. Oh. the, the lodge in London is revolting and, and because Mathers won't come back from Paris with, with more. It's like a battle of magicians. It's, it's very cinematic. And so Crowley says, I will abandon my Abermelon operation temporarily and go to Paris and rescue my master. Hmm. And so he goes, he, uh, he abandons the, the Abermelon operation uh, for the time being. And I'll explain that in a second. Okay. And goes to Paris and uh, embroils himself in the, the battle that uh, is battle about to take majors. place in the Golden <laughs> Dawn. Okay. So. That all falls apart. The Golden Dawn more or less breaks up because of Crowley. Okay. <laughs> He's just, you don't want him to join your club. <laughs> uh, but Crowley will later, uh, around 1904, he will later walk across China. Uh, well, he has a pony 
but as he's walking across uh, China, uh, he is redoing the Abermelon operation in his uh, in his mind as he's monotonously rocking back and forth uh, on his pony. And Crowley uh, uh, would later claim that he finished his Abermelon operation. Uh, he was so far entranced that the pony fell off of a cliff with him on it uh, or a small cliff wow. and he didn't even didn't even notice it until they had to pull up the, the horse off of him wow so that's interesting so he, he left the operation to go save somebody he goes and does that uh, the the golden dawn ends up breaking up probably into a subsects right yeah and then after that, he decides to go through China to complete the Abramelin, correct? Yeah. Well, he he discontinued on his adventures. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, according to the, the Abramelin, you're supposed to gain some great power after you're done. Um, one of them, you know, invisibility, you know, things like that. Um, of course, I don't know of anybody who's done it or... Um, do you know anybody who's done it, or do you know anybody who's practiced it? Well, I know lots it? of people that have the, that have done the operation, but not successful uh, at that. But I don't know if they're invisible. Because, <laughs> I because don't see I'm, them anymore because I'm not <laughs> I'm not seeing them most of the time. So it works, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I just thought that that was an interesting topic, you know, because I know he 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 tried doing it, and of course, there's a bunch of lore behind it where he he did release the Loch Ness monster. Because of the Abramelin, he didn't finish it. And, you know, I know it, it's there's a bunch of things that you hear. It's just you know I'd rather hear from a reliable source. You know? uh, if I if I might plug one of my own works, uh, please do. Yeah, years ago I was asked to write a screenplay uh, fantasy about Crowley, and uh, uh, it was it was actually the. The, the time period that we're talking about mm. that uh, that the book uh, covers uh, and the breakup of the Golden Dawn and the going to Paris and all of that. Uh, and the book is... Uh, oh, and then uh, the... Of course, nothing ever came of the, the screenplay. Uh, and about 10 years later, another film company said, yes, we want to do it, but we're, pretty, we're the UK Film Council... And the screenplay has to be written by a Brit in order for us to get the funding. So, but don't worry. All you have to do is turn it into a novel and then we'll adapt the novel and we'll pay you for it. Nice. So there's always a loophole. I said, oh, all I have to do is turn it into a novel, huh? Okay. So I, <laughs> so I turned the screenplay uh, into a novel so it could be turned into a screenplay. <laughs> by a Brit, by a Brit, right? <laughs> and uh, so, so the, I published the novel. Okay, and the novel is called Alistair Crowley: Revolt of the Magicians. Hmm. And uh, uh, you can get it in paperback or on Kindle. Uh, Alistair Crowley: Revolt of the Magician, and it's fun. It's not good history, but it's good fun. Hmm, that's cool. I think at this point, this is where we probably want to ask our audience for any questions to ask you. I have them live right here on um, on our Instagram. So if anybody would like to ask Lon any questions right now is the time. Um, go ahead and shoot one out. 
and we'll get it to him. Yeah. Questions. So, <laughs> so I'll ask a question while sure, we're waiting for, for some questions. We have one here. Um, so today Hollywood is perceived as having an underworld filled with sex, drugs, and magic. Was this any way influenced by Crowley? Oh, I... Sex, drugs, and magic was... Uh, Crowley liked all of that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I, rather th I rather think that, that uh, Crowley was less uh, the, the cause of the movements that we're seeing in, uh, in modern times, but rather a, a voice that was recognizing what was happening and uh, uh, talking about it. Uh, Crowley called himself a prophet. Well, the Book of the Law calls him a, mm -hmm. a prophet. That's a pretty big title. And a prophet is a very particular, particular and strange kind of holy person. A prophet doesn't have to be a saint. A prophet doesn't have to have to actually be pious or pure or holy. None of the Old Testament prophets are. They're no. they're wild and crazy. Oh yeah. And uh, uh, Eliza, he killed a couple of kids just for making fun of his haircut, you know. All a prophet has to do is to be conscious of a profound shift in human consciousness and be able to give voice without inhibition to that shift in consciousness. A prophet just has to know what's happening and have the audacity to risk his or her life and reputation in announcing it to everyone who will listen and sharing the message yeah. <clears throat> and that's what crowley that's what crowley truly was and uh, without even trying that's what he was and the sex drugs and magic of of hollywood may have been without if crowley had never been born may have still been happening just the way it's happening right now but Crowley was one of the first ones to say, hey, we're really going to have a wild time with sex, drugs, and, <laughs> <laughs> and magic. Right. And he came through Hollywood, and uh, he made fun of everybody because they were on cocaine. Uh, but uh, it, it wasn't in the same way that uh, Dr. Timothy Leary uh, was like a prophet of LSD. I mean, that was sort of his... His uh, his focus. This is this truly is changing human consciousness. You know, Leary would say, Crowley was saying human consciousness is changing, 
And the big message of Crowley's change in human consciousness is a very, very small thing. Are we off the... No, we're still on. Okay. We're just having a little technical difficulty back there. It's okay, though. We're, we'll keep going. The difference between the old aeon and the new aeon is just our own self-identity. And our own self-identity is, is directly connected to our perception of our place in the universe. For I don't know how many thousands of years, we have actually thought deep down inside that the sun goes up, comes up in the morning and goes down at night. Okay. Even years and years and years after we, we know that that uh, we're rotating. That it rotates and stuff, yeah. we're still programmed with sun up, sun down, yep. okay? And as long as we were programmed with that idea of sun up, sun down, we're saying, I'm born and I die. I'm born and I die. Birth, death. The calendar, the time. Right. But finally, something has happened that has caused at least the majority of people and their personal consciousness to actually realize the sun is on all the time. The sun's on all the time. There is no up, down. There is no dark light. There's only light. And enough of us have that so deeply implanted now. Mothers tell their little kids, don't be afraid of the dark. The sun is shining on the other side. Okay, the sun still shines. It never goes off. So as long as we don't think the sun dies, now we're starting to realize that we don't die. Consciousness, the immortality, is what the Book of the Law calls the consciousness of the continuity of existence. That's how we overcome death, by realizing we've never been off in the first place. That's the, that's the only difference between the old aeon dying God and the new aeon formula. So mm. all of Crowley's little tinkerings with, uh, with rituals are just tinkering with old rituals. And applying new. And applying the new formula to mm, them. Interesting. So, yeah. Um, we have one question by Joyce Christine. What is the connection between Kundalini Yoga, the Sephiroth, and consciousness? Uh, they're all the same thing. <laughs> Real quick. There you go. <laughs> you, can, uh, you can go ahead and uh, just uh, look at the classic uh, diagram of the Tree of Life uh, and uh, just uh, simply rearranging a couple along the side, you can project them uh, right on the the major seven sequence of the uh, of the of the chakras. Each of those chakras uh, uh, could be seen as uh, uh, a level of consciousness. That when they're uh, uh, when they have been uh, properly and in a balanced way and in a balanced order. Uh, uh, activate uh, your self identity uh, is transferred to to, the, to that to that chakra, mm. and uh, the idea that uh, 
the, the, the lowest chakra and the, uh, the highest chakra are, are unique, uniquely linked. Uh, and for that, we can go to the hermetic ac axiom of uh, as above, so below. Or Malkuth is in Kether, as Kether is in Malkuth. Yeah. Or when we play with tarot cards, the, the, the tens and the aces are connected. And the aces and the princesses, the highest high and the lowest low, are the same thing. <laughs> They're the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Everything in, in between is like playing with middle ma management. Middle management. And the Abramelin operation was uh, uh, intended to completely activate the Anahat or the heart chakra. Uh, so that's knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel. So if you've activated the Anahat chakra, you've done the Abramelin operation. Right on. So I think at this point, um, if there's any any of you want to talk about the books and where we can get them, uh, what you have here so that our audience can go and purchase. Um, and then we're going to wrap it up do our credits and our goodbyes and get ready for episode five next week. Okay. The, uh, uh, I've got quite a few books and if you just go to Amazon and put my name in, you'll see, see all of them. Lon. Duquette. Lon Milo Duquette. Milo Duquette. Yeah. Uh, but if you're uh, really interested in Kabbalah and the Kabbalah uh, relationship to uh, the, the tarot and magic, uh, I would suggest uh, understanding Aleister Crowley's Thoth Tarot. I want to check that out, yeah. definitely. Uh, and uh, I brought this along if you're interested in Nokia Nokia magic. Vision Magic? Of course. Nokia Vision Magic. But this is one that I hardly ever talk about, and it's really of interest to Masons. Oh, definitely. Uh, it's called The Key to Solomon's Key, Secrets of Magic and Masonry. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I wanted just to, to write a simple uh, uh, handbook for Goetic magic, you know, the Solomonic key and magic. The key. And I wanted to... Uh, uh, find something historic to say about Solomon. And, you know, I couldn't find anything historic to say about Solomon. And that led me on a, on a quest uh, where um, uh, I s seem to have found certain things that are extremely interesting to Masons. Mm. I definitely want to check that out. So that's <laughs> key to Solomon's key. And that's my long. That's Miller perfect Duquette. for our study group. Thank you so much. And I got CDs. I'm a songwriter too. Oh, okay. And, what kind of music? Uh, it's sort of, uh, uh, well, it's acoustic, acoustic, uh, folky, folky kind kind of stuff. But okay. I just write my own, my own stuff, and uh, that's why I was at the. Uh, Scottish Rite's Got Talent. In, oh. <laughs> so I went and, and okay. sang there. Awesome, man. So um just want to let everybody know, please look up Lon Milo Duquette and get his books, uh, preferably from a mom and pop. But if you don't have that near you, Amazon's always a, a nice place to go. Um, 
we want to give uh, a mention of our, our lapel pins and our rings. We do have them on sale. Please DM us for more details. We have our website in the works right now where you can purchase, and it should be up by next week. Um, I want to give a mention to brothers who are putting in work. We have John Paul Gomez of Fraternal Ties, Apathy. Oh, man, Apathy, Demigods. And he's also a real estate agent. He can sell you a house, which is cool. Um, Afrom. Yeah. Uh, so, well, you know, I want to thank Ellie Harbor Lodge for letting us use the building. Um, the production is Indigo Beehive and One World partnering up. And I want to thank uh, Performance G, Vera Auto Care, and, uh, you know, any brother who supports us or any folks who support us, you know, thank you very much. We're doing this to bring more awareness to the esoteric and to the occult, not just for masonry, but for everyone. Uh, so thank you for tuning in. Thank you very much, Lon. I greatly appreciate you coming on the show. And next week we'll have another uh, show probably Thursday or Friday. We're going to go live. So. Uh, we're going on a spiritual retreat, um, and it should be very, very interesting. So Please stay tuned for that. That'll be on location. On location um, in a disclosed area. We have a whole western town to ourselves, which is going to be pretty cool. So thank you very much and have a good night.